You're listening to Climate Rising, an official podcast of Harvard Business School. This is Climate Rising, a podcast from Harvard Business School, and I'm your host, Mike Toffel, a professor here at HBS. Today, we're going to share an episode from Harvard Business Review's technology podcast, Exponential View. This episode features host Azim Azar's interview with Shale Khan on the role of venture capital in deep decarbonization climate tech. Azim and Shale dive into the challenges and opportunities for reaching net zero and why VCs are important for reaching ambitious climate goals. Here's the episode of Exponential View with Azim Azar and Shale Khan. HBR presents. listening to the Exponential View podcast and regular listeners will realise I am not Azim Azar. My name is Fred Casella and I'm one of the producers here at Exponential View, standing in for Azim who is away. Now many of you will know that our mission here at Exponential View is to shine a light, bring some clarity to the bewildering pace of change that is affecting every aspect of our lives by the onward march of technology. This really is a unique period in human affairs, and we believe that it's only by staying informed that we can hope to ensure that this change benefits all of us. If you share that vision, and I hope you do, then please consider taking a few moments to leave a review or rating as it really is the best way to help others find us. Now, before his break, Azim was able to record a great conversation for you with the erudite and fabulous Shale Khan. Shale is a renowned writer and speaker on the energy transition. He is regularly cited in the world's leading publications, has testified before the US Congress, and hosts his own podcast, The Catalyst, on the issues we face in decarbonising our planet. Shale is also a partner at Energy Impact Partners, the leading venture capital fund advancing the net zero carbon economy. Shell and Azim get into the special role that VC firms have to play in supporting climate tech and what the key innovations are coming down the pipe, and of course, what the most important obstacles remain if we are to keep global warming down to that crucial 1.5 degrees Celsius figure. That's enough from me. I hope you enjoy the show. Now, Shell, we'll start with a hearty congratulations. You and your wife recently had your first child. And I was wondering, as someone who's worked in the climate change arena for a while, which is so much about these difficult questions about our future, uh, has your perspective shifted at all now that you have these expanded responsibilities as a dad? You know, it's an interesting question. I was wondering how I was going to think about climate change upon having a child, because I had heard all these stories of people who had kids and it totally changed their perspective. Oftentimes, I think, unfortunately, it made them more despondent about it because of the fears around like the world their child is going to inhabit as they grow older. And I guess I'll say so far, I'm, I'm only a few weeks into it, obviously, but I've not had that experience, fortunately. But as you said, I've spent my whole career thinking about climate change and pathways to decarbonization and so on. And and since I started doing that, you know, we've had this kind of benchmark in our heads around the need to fully decarbonize to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions globally across all sectors by mid-century if not earlier, right? And I've always thought about like 2050 as being, it just seems so far off into the future. And the one thing that having a child has changed a little bit for me is um, if I think about it in the context of his life, right? My son is going to turn 28 
in the year 2050. And that's, that feels much more immediate to me. And actually, if I think, you know, even one step beyond that, and I think, well, if he's going to turn 28 in the year 2050, and by that time we have to be at net zero, then all the things that are going to contribute significantly on a global scale need to be commercial and at scale and, you know, started starting to approach the gigaton scale impact probably halfway between here and there. So that's like when he, you know, goes to his first awkward middle school dance or something. So it's just made this sort of time frame around decarbonization a lot more immediate to me. Uh, that's, that's actually really helpful because we do think about uh, 2050. It's a sort of end point. It's the milestone. But of course, there are these waypoints uh, that we have to get to in order to achieve that. And it seems to me, actually, actually, as somebody who's more than casual observer, but not professional observer of these issues, that we tend to talk about the end state, but we're not so good at articulating the things that need to happen on the way to get there. And I also think that, you know, what you see happening a lot now is there's been this movement to get basically every major emitter, be it a country or a company, to commit to a pathway to net zero. And so everybody says now, okay, we uh, intend to achieve net zero or some version of that by 2050, or maybe it's 2040 or, or something if they're more ambitious. And then there's kind of a next level that comes after that, which is, all right, now chart your path from here to there in as much detail as you can. And that's where a lot of the stuff falls apart today, because it's easy enough to say, sure, we're going to hit net zero in 2050. It's really hard to say, here's exactly how we're going to get there and what we think the technologies are and the costs are going to be and what it means for our operations and and so on. I think it's that interim set of steps that technology has got an important part uh, to play. You know, this is this wicked problem where we have to align policy and commercial investment and individual consumer preference and the, the, the conflicts between nations. Um, and also what the technology can deliver. We first met each other a couple of years ago when I was doing some research into this theme that I had seen, which was a growing amount of venture capital investment called climate tech. And, and we had started to see these levels rise and rise and rise from very, very low levels, maybe a decade ago to as much as perhaps one in seven venture capital dollars going into funding the technologies of climate change. How important is that novel technology axis as a part of the solution relative to existing technologies that we just need to scale out, uh, policy, government relationships, and consumer behavior? I mean, how do we rank those things? I think in some ways, there's this challenge that the community that really cares about climate change mitigation ends up putting itself in by trying to stack rank those things. And so there ends up being this sort of infighting periodically that pops up between folks who are saying, no, we have all the technologies that we need. We just need to deploy the hell out of them on one side. And on the other side, people are saying, actually, no, we need a bunch of breakthroughs and new technologies that either don't exist today or at least not commercial yet in order to get there. And it's like fairly obvious to, I think, anybody who takes a hard look at it that both of those things are true. We actually do have a bunch of technologies that are economic today and can be deployed at orders of magnitude faster than they are being deployed currently, solar and wind being the obvious examples here, at little to no cost to society with significant decarbonization impact. That is basically undeniably true in my mind. And at the same time, it is also true 
that those technologies alone are not going to get us nearly to net zero, let alone all the way there. So we do simultaneously need to be figuring out how to scale up the things that are ready to scale up today as fast as we possibly can. And at the same time, if we want this new suite of technologies to be having the same impact that solar and wind can have over the next 10 years, but over the following 10 or 15 years, then we have no time to waste on getting those things out of the lab and into the market today as well. So you talked about the growth in in climate venture capital, which has only continued to grow since you started looking at it a couple of years ago, which is kind of early on in this new wave. But now it's even much bigger than it ever was. And the nice thing about that is that both are happening, right? There's funds that are really focused on deployment and software and downstream business model innovation. And then there's other funds like what I focused on that are more on the sort of fundamental technologies that are going to be the building blocks of a long-term net zero future. And you have, uh, with your partners, just uh, announced a, a new fund that is tackling frontier technologies that will help us on this part of decarbonization. You've called it uh, deep decarbonization and you laid out five challenges. How do you think those challenges help us think through the steps to getting to that 2050 target? Yeah, the way that I think about deep decarbonization is looking past the near future. So as an example, the IPCC just put out a new report. There's a pretty seminal report. And there's a great chart in the summary for policymakers, which is usually the document that is most readable in IPCC reports. And it has in it basically like a list of, I don't know, 30 some technologies and approaches to decarbonize and the relative magnitude of the impact that they can have on greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. And there's, you know, some clear winners and it's basically solar and wind and forestry and land management. We can do all that stuff and have a pretty big impact in a very short period of time at very low cost. What we're looking at with deep decarbonization is the next level. So let's assume we successfully do all those things. What else do we need to decarbonize? How do we deal with things like industrial emissions? Currently, electricity represents 25% of end-use energy in the world, roughly speaking. What do we do with the other 75%? Because you can add all the solar and wind you want, but if you don't either electrify or decarbonize those other sectors, you haven't solved the problem. How do we deal with things like meat, right? How do we deal with emissions in concrete? Yeah, so when we look at where emissions come from, about three quarters come uh, from energy, a quarter of which is electricity. And then of the remaining 75%, about 15 to 20% is in agriculture and land use and forestry. And then industry is at uh, sort of 5 to 6%. And then waste is a, a sort of the, the remainder. And so we seem to be having a tremendous amount of success around electricity. But then there are these really hard and gnarly areas. But by weight, we sort of have paths for quite a lot of carbon emissions to be minimized, right? Because actually, we are starting to solve things through electricity, and we are starting to solve transport. But then there's a whole set of things that for which we don't seem to have answers right now. I also think that we have a tendency now to sort of think that just because we've solved some really important things, namely how to generate renewable electricity cheaply and at scale, that we've solved electricity or that we've solved light duty transportation because we can electrify it. And I don't think either of those things are foregone conclusions yet. 
So we still have some work to do in electricity. Specifically, we can deploy a lot of solar and wind, but we're going to start to hit some limitations there around the intermittency over long periods of time. We're going to hit limitations around transmission capacity and land use. So we're not done with electricity. We just have the clearest path in the near term. But we still need things like baseload clean energy, be you know nuclear or geothermal. We need long duration batteries to help us manage the intermittency of renewables. But assuming we solve all that and we get our cheap, clean, reliable, ubiquitous electricity, then that is, in my mind, the great unlock for a bunch of other sectors. Not everything. It doesn't solve all of climate change. But you can use that cheap, clean, reliable, ubiquitous electricity to power parts of transportation, to power parts of industry, to power parts of agriculture. And so to me, that's the sort of single biggest wedge we've got. So if you, if you want to, for example, use electricity to decarbonize steel making, right? Steel is 8% of global greenhouse gas emissions, single largest source of industrial emissions in the world. You can use electricity to produce steel rather than using coal. But steel is a gigantic industry, trillions of dollars a year. It's going to take a monumental effort, even if the technology works exactly as we hope it will, to get it to the scale where it can have a gigaton impact on on CO2. So there's still just a long road for all these new technologies. That, you know, that's a healthy dose of realism. Sometimes on the Twitterati, there is a, a sense that if you drive the price of renewable energy down low enough, you can build excess capacity and you, you can magic through that to handle all of these industrial processes. And and I guess your point is, well, that might be sort of theoretically the case, but these are huge industries uh, that have many, many other dependencies, and it will take time to implement those, even if this abundant electricity is available. I'm just saying the task ahead of us is sort of daunting, no matter how you're looking at it, even if you just care about deploying lots and lots of renewables. You know, if you're one of the sort of renewable energy zealots who says we can solve everything with wind, water, and solar. Even if that's true, we have to solve a bunch of problems just to get enough wind, water, and solar developed on the grid and to get the grid strong enough and built out enough in all these places. So at the same time, every single component of this is an enormous opportunity. I mean, this is why there's so much excitement around climate tech and the venture capital community is that you know the total addressable market for basically everything within climate tech is huge. Because unfortunately, emissions come from basically every large sector of the economy, right? That's your TAM for climate tech. It's not hard to get really big numbers there. So, you know, what is a big challenge is also a big opportunity. So when we talk about climate tech, we're really talking about the um, fundamental investments in technologies that will impact pretty much every piece of economic activity, certainly that the world's currently engaged in. You know, I think you can overdraw this analogy, but I will, I'll draw it nonetheless, which is, you know, there's that famous quote from, from Mark Andreessen, Software is Eating the World, that kind of under, underpinned the entire thesis for Andreessen Horowitz's venture capital strategy. And the idea there was software will kind of go one by one through every major sector of the economy and transform it over time. And that I think has generally proven to be true. I think you can say something similar about climate in the sense that emissions come from nearly every major sector of the economy. And if we're truly going to decarbonize, then basically every one of those industries needs to transform in some way or another in order to decarbonize. So climate, I think, will end up eating the world in a slightly different way from how software did. 
but it's a similar idea. Yeah, another investor, I'm sure you know, Andrew Beebe at Obvious uh, Ventures, who said to me uh, a couple of years ago, he goes, well, you know, I think of climate tech a little bit like dot-com. Uh, you know, there was a point in 98, 99, where every company had to be a dot-com. And then by 2003, every company was a dot-com, but they didn't say they were. And he said, it's going to be like that with climate tech, right? At the moment, you say it's a different sector, it's a different sort of form of behavior. But in some period of time, hopefully shorter than longer, everything will be a kind of inherently at its heart, a sort of a climate tech company. If it's not involved in actually sort of sucking carbon out of the atmosphere in a very hard tech way, it will be climate tech in the sense that it's managing and mitigating its footprint, the footprint of its processes, its inputs and its outputs. Climate tech, I think, is a sector of convenience. It's not really a sector. We, we call it a sector, but it's not, right? It's a theme. We're saying that the, something needs to change in a million different places, and that single thing that needs to change can be measured in tons of CO2 equivalent. But the actual pathways to reduce or remove those tons of CO2 equivalent are myriad, and they vary a ton by sector. So climate tech is just a consistent theme across many different sectors. It's not a single technology or suite of technologies. So can we go back to the new fund that you, you've announced, the, the, the Frontier Fund? You have your deep decarbonization and you have your five themes. Will you just run through them uh, for us again? The problem with climate change in part and wrapping your head around is it's just really complex. There's lots of interdependencies across all these different sectors. It's really confusing. So I have tried to spend a lot of time thinking about what are the core challenges that we need to solve to get to net zero or approach net zero. And I sort of boiled it down to five core challenges. The first thing that we need to do is what we already discussed, which is solve electricity, basically. And that means we need electricity on a global scale to be low cost, abundant, reliable, ubiquitous, and zero carbon, most importantly. Uh, that's no small task, but I think maybe of these five challenges, the one that we have the clearest pathway toward. The second thing we need to do is we need to figure out how to solve the biggest industrial emitters. The emissions from large industry generally are energy-related emissions, but they are generally not electricity. So these are things like steel and cement and chemicals, which uh, emit a ton of greenhouse gases. It's about a third of all uh, GHG emissions, I think, or just slightly under a third, right? So it's huge. A little bit under a third. So it's really, really big. Those are very difficult to solve. Electricity may be a solution for some of them, directly or indirectly via stuff like green hydrogen. But either way, that is task number two. Go after the big industrial emitters, steel, cement, chemicals, aluminum. You can go down the list. The third thing we need to do is solve transportation. And, you know, there's multiple components to that. I think light, light duty transportation is probably the most solvable via electrification. It's pretty clear. So that's the one that is more of a deployment and sort of business model and pace of acceleration of adoption challenge. Uh, but that doesn't solve all of transportation, right? There is still heavy duty transportation, which is uh, shipping and aviation and trucking uh, and most freight. Those are harder to solve and where there's still multiple pathways that that everybody is pursuing, all of it needs to get to net zero if we're going to solve the whole problem. So we've got electricity, big industrial emissions, transportation. The fourth thing we need to do is we need to build, I guess, what I've been calling a carbon management industry. Um, 
basically from zero. And that's going to involve capturing CO2 both from point sources, from emitters, but probably even more than that, ultimately, removing carbon from the atmosphere because there's basically no realistic way that we are going to get to net zero fast enough by just doing these other things. That's an industry that basically does not exist today, but needs to be in the tens to hundreds of billions, perhaps even a trillion dollar market by mid-century. So that's a massive undertaking. And then the final thing, that at least the way that I've described it, is we need to decarbonize Maslow's basic needs. I'm sure you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of human needs. If you look at that pyramid, two of the things on the very base of the pyramid that represent the most basic human needs are major sources of emissions, which is food, food and agriculture, and buildings, you know, shelter in the case of Maslow. So we need to solve for emissions in buildings and emissions in our food. And that's the final thing that we need to do. If we can solve all of those five things, then, you know, you can add that all up and we're probably 90 to 95% of the way to deep decarbonization. The framework well articulates how we can break down this enormous problem into five almost as enormous problems. But within all of that, of course, we're going to have to deliver these technologies in the form of companies. And there are some fantastic ones in the um, Energy Impact Partners portfolio. One of the ones I found really fascinating was this battery storage uh, company called Form Energy, which is, I think, was quite surprising in terms of its technologies and its chemistry when I, when I read about it. I would love to hear what you found interesting uh, about the founders and that company and, and, and why you chose to back them. Well, Form was the first investment that we made out of this Frontier Fund a year and a half ago. And I've known the CEO, Matteo Jaramillo, for over a decade. He, prior to founding Form with a few co-founders, he was at Tesla and he was a big part of um, building Tesla's stationary energy storage business. So what is now the Powerwall and the Powerpack before they were called that. And I got to know him then. And, you know, he's just an incredible founder, a really great person. So we, his co-founders are amazing. And it's a, it's the team you would design in a lab to, to solve this problem. But apart from that, what they're going after is, is a, a real problem that is emerging and will only get stronger that that there are very few other solutions for. And that problem is, as you add more and more wind and solar to the grid, you start to face issues with their intermittency, unsurprisingly. But that intermittency comes in, in different time scales. So let's just talk about a grid that is heavy in solar. I'm in California. So this is a, a market where we're adding more and more solar all the time, and it, it's great. I think of there being two ultimate big time scale problems. The first is diurnal, so on a daily basis. And this one's the obvious one, right? If we're a grid that is heavily reliant on solar, how do we deal with the fact that we're going to generate a ton of power during the day and very little at night? That is a problem that I think generally can be solved uh, via a combination of kind of baseload clean resources and probably more importantly, batteries that we're familiar with, lithium-ion batteries, because they are well-suited to providing energy storage that lasts, say, four to maybe 12 hours at a time. But you also face a problem on longer timescales. If you have multiple days at a time, for example, where there is no sun, right? You have a cloudy set of days. We generate probably three times as much solar in the summer here in California as we do in the winter. So if your grid that's really heavily reliant on solar, how do you deal with these longer term challenges? That's a problem that lithium ion batteries are not well suited to because the costs scale pretty linearly as you add more duration to the storage. So if you wanted to deliver multiple days of energy storage, it'd be really, really expensive. So the only way to solve that with a battery 
is you need a battery that can last hundreds of hours at a time for which the capital cost is basically a tenth the capital cost of lithium ion. And that's what Forum is doing. So in a sense, the challenge is finding a much, much more cost-effective battery chemistry. And so Form uh, has an approach that is an iron-air battery. And the benefit of an iron-air battery is that the cost entitlement is extremely low, especially relative to lithium ion. So if they can scale up the technology as we hope that they will, then they can deliver energy storage at you know a tenth the cost of lithium ion, which is exactly what you need if you're going to try to deliver 100 hours of energy storage instead mm. of... When you say iron-air, the thing that, um, that struck me about this is that you know, iron is a metal that we know really, really well. We've been working with it for uh, thousands of years. Um, do those types of things, both the sort of previous uh, in investments together with our sort of understanding of its metallurgy and its chemistry help with the cost challenge that we're trying to uh, address with this sort of approach? You're hitting on hitting on why it makes sense, because iron as an active material is abundant, well-produced. It's not hard to get your hands on. It is well understood and it's just very cheap. And so that as the active anode material is sort of perfect if you're trying to build a uh, very, very, very cheap battery. And so give us a flavor for what a, what a form battery will look like and how much is it going to end up adding to, to the cost of my electricity? Well, hopefully it's going to reduce the cost of your electricity, ultimately not add to the cost, right? Because what it's going to do is in various versions for various applications, it is going to balance out the really, really cheap renewable energy that we can now add at high volumes, uh, but make that renewable energy available all the time instead of available some of the time. So from a cost perspective, it should, it should be beneficial. What it's going to look like is this is going to be industrial scale. So this is not intended to you know, power your house. This is intended to go on the grid uh, at large scale. And, you know, it's going to look like a, a big industrial battery. It's actually, you know, the problem with batteries in general is they don't look all that interesting. They're not as sexy to take a photo of as like a solar array or a wind farm or something like that, but it's going to look like a big industrial park. Um, and it's going to get plugged directly into the grid or get tied to a, a clean energy project. And it's going to basically operate sort of cycling up and down a few times a year, probably, but it's going to be charging and discharging to, to basically flatten the profile of renewable energy projects or just sort of solving problems on the grid, like if you have transmission bottlenecks or something like that. The thing that I find so fascinating within the renewable grid, but also the, the battery storage and the other types of storage that are, that are required is how much more of a portfolio of technologies will be available for the operators of these grids and actually how the, the sort of narrative of communication across the grid starts to change from being a, a, a linear directed approach into something that is much more web-like, a lot more internet-like. Uh, one of my friends runs a company which strings together the lithium ion batteries in electric vehicles uh, into a big virtual battery so that actually as a consumer, I, I can also become a producer, not simply through, say, solar feed-in, but by lending some of the spare charge in my car's battery to my next-door neighbor or to the grid itself on a day that it, when it's cloudy or when the wind it's not so windy. And that, to me, is a really fascinating um, opportunity to rethink the nature of the grid from this 
you know, very industrial one-way process to something that is a little bit more distributed, a bit more dynamic and a, a bit more uh, two-way. The blurring of the lines between demand and supply in electricity is probably the, the biggest transition that that market is, is undergoing. It comes both from the fact that, you know, batteries are both, right? They are both demand and they are supply on the grid. And as, as you said, we're now seeing end customers who can be both through their electric vehicles or maybe the batteries that they've got at their house, or they can be a sort of form of demand that is actually more flexible and can operate in accordance with the needs of the grid by just things like smart thermostats and um, shifting their load around. So it's getting more complex to operate electricity networks, but it's getting more complex because the resources that we are adding are new and have capabilities that we haven't seen before. So if we can fully leverage them to their to their maximum, then I think it's going to be a real paradigm shift in the world of electricity. So, Shell, if you look at someone like Form Energy, can they be content with just sort of building the technology and saying, here are the specifications, here's what it does, and hope the market takes it up? Or do they actually need to shape the market expectations about this new capability that's going to behave very differently to other things that the buyers and within the grid have had to think about and that might actually shape the way the grid operates in quite fundamentally different ways? And I mean, it seems to me they have to do the latter. But if they have to do the latter, then we're asking quite a lot of a young management team, right? Not only do they have to build this, bring this really difficult technology to market, it's got to be 10x better than its competitors, but they also have to sort of figure out all this business model, regulatory value changes that they're going to have to to put their products into. They recognize very early on that if you're going to introduce an entirely new kind of resource into this market, you can't just trust the market to immediately recognize exactly how it should be used, where it should be placed, what it should displace, and so on. And so what Form did from the very early days is they built out this ultimately really sophisticated analytical suite that they call Formware, which is a suite of modeling tools to help model out grid scenarios that are really complicated and that the traditional grid modeling tools are actually not well suited to to modeling that include a bunch of things around what happens when you add new, more intermittent resources onto the grid and what is the suite of technologies that you should deploy to, to supplement those among which include the question of, well, what if you had a battery that had these specifications? Where would it fit on the grid? Where does it make sense economically? Where does it not? What should, should it displace and what shouldn't? So they, they started very early on saying, we can't just let the market come to us. We have a resource that we think is going to have enormous value. We need to show where that value is going to be. And along the way, we need to actually you know, prove to our future customers that uh, this kind of thing is going to have a lot of value to them and that they can recognize where that they, they should use it. But it, you know, to your point, it's a really high bar for a team that knows how to navigate the difficulties of selling into the electricity market in the first place, notoriously difficult, dealing with the regulatory construct, and particularly doing so with an entirely new class of resource. So, you know, in the case of Form, I feel incredibly confident that they can do it, but it's re- it is, you know, and they would tell you the same thing, really difficult. It's an example of, you know, one of the many companies trying to do these sorts of things where it's not just about the product. And I think you, you've 75, 80 companies in your portfolio, many of which will face the same sort of scale of, of challenges, which brings me to one of your other thesis, this idea of that we need to build a carbon management industry from scratch. Now, 
I guess carbon management is includes everything from being able to count, analyze, optimize emissions, figuring out where we're going to store it once it's been taken out of the the atmosphere. And it's definitely not hyperbole uh, to say that we've got quite far to go with developing a full carbon management industry. Uh, what are the things that make you feel optimistic about us being able to deliver that in the next 20 or 30 years? I think we do have an incredibly long way to go. I mean, just to put a number on it for you. So carbon removal, total volume of transacted purchases for carbon removal credits, which is basically how these things get monetized in 2021 was under $50 million, pretty safely under $50 million. It's been bigger this year, but that was the total volume last year. The size of the market in 2050, if we are going to hit a 1.5 degree Celsius future needs to be in the sort of gigatons scale, which is billions of tons. And if you figure it's $100 a ton, roughly speaking, that's hundreds of billions of dollars, could be as much as a trillion dollars. Now, what makes me optimistic? I mean, I would say I don't think we're anywhere near this being a foregone conclusion that we're going to get there, right? We're working backward from what do we need in order to achieve uh, a reasonable future with uh, regard to, to climate change. What makes me think that we're going to at least head down the right road is, I think, generally speaking, increasing recognition of that need all across the board. So that's the sort of that recognition among the scientific community, amongst some in the tech community who are kind of forming the early purchasers for this stuff. It's gaining a lot of attention and a lot of investment. The question is, is there going to be a clear glide path from 50 million to a trillion in the absence of international mandates and regulation and standards that require it? Or are we going to need some kind of concerted global policy effort to drive carbon removal up to that kind of scale? Here we go. Here's kind of the relentlessly uh, optimistic uh, case. There is this increasing collective belief that carbon uh, removal is going to be really critical part of the solution. And one of the consequences is that more and more investors from an asset allocation perspective are starting to see carbon and carbon credits as a tradable and investable asset class. So they feel they need to hold these things in their portfolios just from the perspective of being good asset allocators and spreading their risk. And that starts to kind of create a demand for these credits. And of course, these credits are then going to be supplied by some kind of industry. It's incredibly fledgling right now, but they will start to see that there are already buyers that are out there. So, so that, that's the first thing. And, it, and for me, that kind of constructs a flow of money into the, into the market. The second aspect to all of this also comes from the finance world, which is that risk is starting to already be priced. Climate risk is being priced into um, the cost of capital for different types of projects. One of my previous podcast guests, Michele de la Vigna, who runs the Carbonomics Research Program at Goldman Sachs, made the point that it's already 5 to 7% per annum more expensive to fund a coal plant than it is to fund a solar plant uh, because capital understands the risks and it, it is reflected essentially in how expensive it is um, to build something that is that is dirty. And then the third area I think about is 
Have we got any precedent for scaling industries as quickly as we might need to scale the carbon management industry? And I think a little bit about the computing industry, where, you know, back when I was born in 1972, there were a few thousand computers in the world. And by the time my son was born in, in 2005, there were billions of computers uh, in the world. And, and the capability of each of those computers was, was far, far greater. So we have this kind of modern machine, which is the modern economy that can, when there is enough belief in something, has a track record in being able to achieve a scale of the gigas, that is the sort of billions of computers that were, were in the world. Without being a climate expert, the kind of relentlessly optimistic case for why we could deliver the carbon management industry that you've identified that we, we needed. So what's wrong with that picture? It's a plausible future. It's certainly the future that I hope occurs. And I think if you yeah, kind of squint at it a little bit, you run across what are likely to be some roadblocks along the way. Among the roadblocks you can think about. So sort of the idea of traders holding these credits just to, for the purpose of, of trading, I think what's actually happening here, folks get confused about what, how these credits actually get traded. Like the, the reality, at least today, is you've got tradable carbon credits that are in compliance markets. So you're in Europe. Europe has a regulated carbon market, the EU ETS. Those are tradable carbon credits. They're traded. It's a $700 billion annual volume or something like that. And so there, there are markets for stuff like that. That's not really what's happening with this carbon removal world. What's happening in the carbon removal world is voluntary currently. And the way that it's working is just bilateral purchases. So there's not really a lot of trading of credits. What's happening is a buyer who needs to be a net zero is purchasing a, a strip of credits from a project. Could it become tradable and with sort of commodity pricing? Potentially, though, I think we're a ways from that because the market is still very messy. There's still very low supply of these credits. They're not actually commodities, right? They, they differ on some key characteristics, like permanence, oh, for example. Right. Yep. Yeah, so I think there's a long way to go for there to be this like tradable liquid market for this stuff. The beauty of that is that we have experience of taking non-tradable mar markets that are, are don't look like commodities, they look like they're gonna be hard to trade and turning them into markets. I mean, that's what the financial services industry does. It's what they did with things like credit default swaps. It's what we're starting to do in, on the retail side with ETFs, where we start to bundle all sorts of other assets and stick them into these things called ETFs. I mean, if, if the financial services industry, the banking industry is good at one particular thing, it's that idea of being able to enable markets and create the conditions for which a market can therefore emerge. I think the bigger challenges you probably face along the way are going to be those of physical constraints. So where are we going to get this billion tons of carbon removal from? Well, it's going to probably come from a variety of different sources. But, you know, if it's direct air capture, for example, which is maybe the most scalable thing that we've got, it's a machine that captures CO2 from the air. Uh, so you could put that machine anywhere, but the challenge is it's pretty energy intensive. So if you want to do that at the gigaton scale, particularly if you're going to power using electricity, which most of these systems are electrochemical, if you add up the actual amount of renewables that you will need to build to power the direct air capture, and then you layer that on top of the amount of renewables we already need to build to decarbonize the grid, and then you layer that on top of the amount of renewables we need to expand electricity's share of energy demand via electrification of transportation and industry and things like that, you know, it just adds up to kind of a monumental amount of land use and transmission and all these other constraints that we face. So there's these kind of like interrelated challenges in, in scaling up at least portions of carbon removal. 
again, though, I think we're in the early days of of the suite of technologies that we're going to use for this carbon management industry. And there's just this Cambrian explosion of new approaches right now, some of which are nature-based, some of which are synthetic, some of which are kind of a hybrid, some of which use the ocean, some of which use soil, some of which use land or trees, some of which build engineered machines. And, you know, so you add all of that up. And I think there's at least enough of a, we've got a basket of promising opportunities that we can scale up. So I, I I don't think you're wrong to be optimistic, but I just think it's going to be a long road. Right. So when we look at markets that are on the verge of expanding dramatically in size with an uncertain path to that expansion, where we're going to rely on technologies that are more and increasingly less proven that need to be brought to market by remarkable management teams. There's a particular type of capital that supports that journey, and that is venture capital. And you're a venture capitalist with energy impact partners. I'm curious about whether you as a firm looking at this opportunity, like a traditional venture capitalist, only care about the financial measures, the IRR, the internal rate of return, or the MOIC, the multiple on invested capital, or the cash on cash return. Are you solely driven by the financial metrics or do you have some kind of uh, double or triple bottom line reporting where you you think about your your carbon or sustainability impact as well the way that i think about it at least for our fund we are a financial fund and we have financial investors that are in it for the return they believe this is going to be a good investment as i do as well but there's a, a heavy filter at the front end for things that can have a significant impact on on climate change. I think of that as being a financial filter as much as anything else. If you if you can have a scaled impact on climate change, there's going to be, I think, a higher level of demand for whatever your product is going to be than if you didn't have a big impact. One of our portfolio companies, Boston Metal, which is the one decarbonizing steel making, the CEO Tadeo has said, there's a global conspiracy for us to succeed. And I think of that as being true for a lot of this sort of deep decarbonization technology stuff where it, you know, everybody wants this to work, everybody who, who has a mind toward the future. So I think of that as being a financial filter, but it is a filter at the front end, right? If this isn't going to have a big impact on decarbonization, it's not a fit for us. But with that said, our, the metrics that we care about ultimately are traditional venture capital metrics. We expect to have above market returns and we're not sacrificing on that in exchange for anything. So you don't consider the carbon abatement potential of an investment when you go off and make it? You don't build a model to look at where the portfolio is going and and what its aggregate contribution to this journey will be? Oh, no, we do. We do. We just don't view that as being a sacrifice on the returns side. So we look at greenhouse gas emissions abatement potential of every investment that we make. We then also measure, and we have fairly actually sophisticated ESG team that does a bunch of really detailed measurement of actual emissions impact of everything in our portfolio once we do invest. So we, we do all of that. We just view that as being a part of our core financial investment thesis, as opposed to saying, well, we're going to make a trade-off on pure financial returns perspective by adding this additional layer. And so I'm with you on that as well, right? So I think there is no trade-off now. There there may have been a trade-off 15 years ago, but certainly in the last few years, it's clear that these are the biggest and most exciting markets, as well as the best markets from a sort of human flourishing perspective to go after. 
So just before we recorded this conversation, there was the IPCC report that, that came out, that sort of new update. And it's a really interesting set of tweets from one of the lead authors, Sarah Birch. Um, and I'm, I'm going to just pick out some of the optimistic ones that, that she brought out. You know, she said, for the first time, we're seeing evidence of real sustained decreases in greenhouse gas emissions from some countries, that a low carbon economy can create more jobs that last that there's really promising signals on renewables. But on the other hand, the negative side, GHG emissions have been the highest in human history and we're not on track to limit warming to less than 1.5 degrees. One of her key uh, items was that the flow of finance needs to go up by 300 to 600% to spur the scale of action that's needed. So in the context of that sort of mix that we've kind of demonstrated progress, but still a, a big mountain to climb, and the requirement for there to be much, much more finance to, to fund all of this, how do you think we go about untapping the very large pools of capital that are yet to, to flow uh, into decarbonisation? To be honest with you, 300 to 600% does not sound that intimidating to me. Like, I think that's going to happen because I think the way that you unlock larger flows of capital is by showing returns from the earlier flows of capital. If this stuff works, and this is what we've seen with solar and wind, right? The, the capital that is now deploying that stuff at scale is traditional infrastructure capital. That wasn't true 10 years ago. Um, and they're doing it because it's now proven and it works and it makes money. And I think we just have to do that in sector after sector after sector. And I'm pretty confident that we'll get three to six times as much capital into this sector over the next decade or so. That that seems entirely doable to me. So if that's all it takes from a financing perspective, first of all, I'd be sort of surprised. But also, I think that's that's not too intimidating. Shale, I'd like to go forward to, to 2050. And let's imagine that we do make really, really great progress. Uh, Your son will be 28 years old in 2050. And when you think out to that and you look at this new economy that has been decarbonized, what do you think that means for the kind of choices that he will have, the kind of work he will do, and the, the nature of the world in which he will live? Ooh, that's such a good question. I mean, I think the road between here and there, he's going to live through some really like, you know, every time the IPCC comes out with a new report, we basically say the same thing. There's this really exciting progress, but we're not moving fast enough. And I think that's going to keep happening. It's going to keep becoming more and more urgent. And so he's, his childhood is going to be marked by, I think, some really challenging times, probably driven by by increasing recognition that climate change is like a global calamity. But if we are painting the optimistic picture of the future, we're going to see these dramatic transformations of major sectors of the economy toward new technologies that are cleaner, but also ultimately should be cheaper. And as you said, could create more jobs. Like it's a very, there's a very sort of utopian version of how this could play out in the long term if we move fast enough today. I'm not enough of a futurist to be able to like tell you how it's going to affect the choices he can make in his life and things like that. I think about the more practical things like, it, it, you know, he will not have to make decisions about where to live based on how bad the wildfire risk is going to be there in the next few years. And, you know, hurricanes are not going to be a, and floods are not going to be a factor that determine where economic opportunities are for my son. Like th- those are the types of things that I think an optimistic version of the future does not include, 
where a baseline version of the future definitely includes. Well, that is something for us to work towards. Shail Khan, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thank you for having me. This was fun. Well, I really hope you enjoyed that. And if you did, we have more in our archive. I would particularly recommend Azim's conversation with Michele Della Vigna, Goldman Sachs's top carbon economy analyst and the creator of their Carbonomics research program. It's a deep dive into the economics we need to bring us to a net zero world. This podcast was produced by Chantal Smith, Maria Gavrilov, Sophie King, and me, Fred Casella. Exponential View is a production of E to the Pi I Limited. This was a bonus episode of Climate Rising, bringing to you an episode of Exponential View from Harvard Business Review with Azim Azar and Shail Khan. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, share with your friends, and don't forget to rate and review. For show notes, head over to climaterising.org or click on the link in the podcast information. You've been listening to Climate Rising. I'm your host, Mike Toffel. Kate Zarenner is our producer, and Craig McDonald is our audio engineer. We'll be back in two weeks with another episode of Climate Rising. See you then.